Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you for being here on Social Distancing Radio for Public Domain Radio. Tell everybody who you are. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Stuart Jaffe, and I'm uh, the author of over 40 novels. Um, I'm best known for the Max Porter Paranormal Mysteries series, which is uh, about a guy who moves to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and discovers his office is haunted by the ghost of a 1940s detective. So he does what anyone in that situation would do and starts a detective agency with the ghost. And uh, Naturally. What else are you going to do? And uh, I take real history of the area and mix it with witches, ghosts, curses, and magic. Uh, I also write the Nathan Kay fantasy thriller series, the Parallel Society series, which is contemporary fantasy with uh, kick-ass grandmas, (laughs) among other things. And uh, and loads of other stuff. Awesome. Oh, and I I should be remiss if I didn't mention that... uh, uh, in 2021, starting in May, I think it's May, June, and Ju- July every month, uh, I have a trilogy coming out through Falstaff Books, which will be a uh, uh, epic fantasy mystery hybrid. Ooh, oh, that sounds really cool. It's it's. I'm writing the third book right now, and, and like I said, they're going to come out one a month, and uh, mm-hmm. starting in May, the end of May, I think. And uh, it's been really exciting and fun. Um, something I probably would never have just got around to writing on my own, but I was under, I'm under contract. So it kind of made me write them <laughs> and uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I'm so, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really happy with the results so far. That's awesome. Well, I'm so glad that we get to do this because I don't get to see any of my con friends, obviously yeah. at the moment, which has been trying. And so it's really good to get to see you. Likewise, likewise. So what are you going to read? So, well, the first thing I'm going to read, let me pull it up here, is uh, I'm going to read my public domain piece first. And this, sure. is, uh, this is from the book She by H. Ryder Haggard. Um, I have a master's in English. And when I was working on, on that, I had a class that was in non-canonical texts. Uh, um, so this is from 1880. Four, I think, I forget. Uh, and H. Ryder Haggard was a, a, what would be today considered kind of a pulp writer. Um, and I had no idea stuff like this even existed back then because I'd always, you know, like most people, I heard of Jane Austen and, or, you know, Thackeray's Vanity Fair or you name it. But there's all kinds of stuff that was published that never made it into schools. You know, yeah. and so you don't hear about it anymore, but that that were quite amazing. And uh, 
the book she is kind of the prototype of Indiana Jones. Um, so I, I thought I would read just the opening and you get a little bit of a, an idea of it. Um, yeah, yeah, please. That sounds amazing. So I will give the caveat. This is written in 1884. It's, <laughs> it's not politically correct. And I don't know if any of that comes up. I can't recall if any of that comes up in the, the bit I'm going to read, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that because it's, that's a big part of it uh, yeah, later. No problem. But anyway, <laughs> here we go. I, for my Patreon, I'm currently reading um, the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, okay. which I've never read before. Mm-hmm. And the last episode, I got to a part, and I just like in the middle of a sentence had to stop and say, "Oh, oh, I think this is probably about to get real racist," you know. And <laughs> yes. and I was right. Who <laughs> knew? So yeah, it has part of what we have to acknowledge about these works. The the uh, the only other thing I need to uh, I, I am starting a little bit in the middle of chapter one here because the first part of it is just him looking at himself in a mirror and, <laughs> and commenting on how ugly he thinks he is and, and all this. But, um, but basically uh, I'll start here where there literally is a knock at the door. Oh. And here we go. I listened before I went to open it for it was nearly 12 o'clock at night and I was in no mood to admit any stranger. I had but one friend in the college or indeed in the world, perhaps it was he. Just then the person outside the door coughed and I hastened to open it for I knew the cough. A tall man of about 30 with the remains of great personal beauty came hurrying in, staggering beneath the weight of a massive iron box which he carried by handle with his right hand. He placed the box upon the table and then fell into an awful fit of coughing. He coughed and coughed till his face became quite purple and at last he sank into a chair and began to spit up blood. I poured out some whiskey into a tumbler and gave it to him. He drank it and seemed better, though his better was very bad indeed. Why did you keep me standing there in the cold? He asked pettishly. You know the draughts are death to me. I did not know who it was, I answered. You are a late visitor. Yes, and I very believe it is my last visit, he answered with a ghastly attempt at a smile. I am done for, Holly. I am done for. I do not believe that I shall see tomorrow. Nonsense, I said. Let me go for the doctor. He waved me back imperiously with his hand. It is sober sense, but I want no doctors. I have studied medicine, and I know all about it. No doctors can help me. My last hour has come. For a year past, I have only lived by a miracle. Now listen to me, as you have never listened to anybody before, for you will not have the opportunity of getting me to repeat my words. We have been friends for two years. Now tell me, how much do you know about me? I know that you're rich and have a fancy to come to college long after the age that most men leave it. I know that you've been married and that your wife died and that you have been the best, indeed, almost the only friend I ever had. Did you know that I have a son? No, I have. He is five years old. He cost me his mother's life and I have never been able to bear to look upon his face in consequence. Holly, if you will accept the trust, I'm going to leave you the boys, that boy's sole guardian. I sprang almost out of my chair. Me, I said. Yes, you. I have not studied you for two years for nothing. I have known for some time that I could not last. And since I realized the fact, I have been searching for someone to whom I could confide the boy and this. And he tapped the iron box. You are the man, Holly, for like a rugged tree, you are hard and sound at core. Listen, 
the boy will be the only representative of one of the most ancient families in the world, that is, so far as families can be traced. You will laugh at me when I say it, but one day it will be proved to you beyond a doubt that my 65th or 66th lineal ancestor was an Egyptian priest of Isis, though he was himself of Grecian extraction and was called Callicrates. His father was one of the Greek mercenaries raised by Hakor, a Mendesian pharaoh of the 29th dynasty, and his grandfather or great-grandfather, I believe, was the very Callicrates mentioned by Herodotus, or in or about the year 339 before Christ. Just at the time of the final fall of the pharaohs, this Callicrates, the priest, broke his vows of celibacy and fled from Egypt with a princess of royal blood who had fallen in love with him and was finally wrecked upon the coast of Africa, somewhere, as I believe, in the neighborhood of where Delagoa Bay now is, or rather to the north of it, he and his wife being saved, and all the remainder of their company destroyed in one way or another. Here they endured great hardships, but were at last entertained by the mighty queen of a savage people, a white woman of peculiar loveliness, who, under circumstances which I cannot enter into, but which you will one day learn, if you live, from the contents of the box, finally murdered my ancestor, Callicrates. His wife, however, escaped, how I know not, to Athens, bearing a child with her, whom she named Tisithians, or the mighty Avenger. 500 years or more afterwards, the family migrated to Rome under circumstances of which no trace remains. And here, probably with the idea of preserving the idea of vengeance, which we find set out in the name of Tisiphians, they appear to have pretty regularly assumed the cognomen of Vindex or Avenger. Here too, they remained for another five centuries or more till about 770 AD when Charlemagne invaded Lombardy where they were then settled, whereupon the head of the family seems to have attached himself to the great emperor and to have returned with him across the Alps and finally to have settled in Brittany. Eight generations later, his lineal representative crossed to England in the reign of Edward the Confessor and in the time of William the Conqueror was advanced to great honor and power. From that time to the present day, I can trace my descent without a break. Not to the, Vinci, not to the Vinci's, for that was the final corruption of the name after, it bear, after its bearers took root in English soil, have been particularly distinguished. They never came much to the fore. Sometimes they were soldiers, sometimes merchants, but on the whole, they have preserved a dead level of respectability and a, steel, and a still deader level of mediocrity. From the time of Charles II till the beginning of the present century, they were merchants. About 1790, my grandfather made a considerable fortune out of brewing and retired. In 1821, he died and my father succeeded him and dissipated, and dissipated most of the money. 10 years ago, he died also, leaving me a net income of about 2,000 a year. Then it was that I undertook an expedition in connection with that, and he pointed to the iron chest, which ended disastrously enough. On my way back, I traveled to the south of Europe and finally reached Athens. There I met my beloved wife, who might well also have been called the beautiful, like my old Greek ancestor. There I married her, and there a year afterwards, when my boy was born, she died. He paused a while, his head sunk upon his hand, and then continued. My marriage had diverted me from a project which I cannot enter into now. I have no time. Holly, I have no time. One day, if you accept my trust, you will learn all about it. 
After my wife's death, I turned my mind to it again. But first it was necessary, or at least I conceived that it was necessary, that I should attain to a perfect knowledge of Eastern dialects, especially Arabic. It was to facilitate my studies that I came here. Very soon, however, my disease developed itself and now there is an end of me. And as though to emphasize his words, he burst into another, another terrible fit of coughing. Perhaps I should stop there because he goes on for quite a lengthy bit more, but what he will eventually explain is uh, that he wants uh, Mr. Holly to raise his son. And when his son is 22, they're going to, they're to open the box. <laughs> How does this book have like endless shades of Lovecraft and Chandler and I apologize. I forgot to turn that off. Oh, no, no, no worries. Um, so like, it has so many different things in it. it. Isn't this amazing? <laughs> I, d I would never, if anybody had said, describe an adventure story written in the 1880s, I never would have described that. And, and, and it gets even better because I didn't, I chose to read that portion because it, it conveys a lot of that, but there's an introduction is written from the point of view of the editor of the book, the fictitious editor of, of the book you're reading. Okay. Okay. In which the editor explains that, how he came up, he met this guy who turns out to be Holly uh, in this, it goes on and on how they, they bumped into each other. And then years later, he receives this package with these uh, relics, cut three strange relics and a manuscript, which is the manuscript you're reading. So it's this meta thing. And in the piece I read to you, there's actual, and I, I didn't, I didn't read them, but there's, there's, uh, uh, it's annotated by that editor going into even further detail. So it's got that going throughout the entire book as well. This is like House of Leaves. It, it, it is, but not as insane. House of Leaves is, is insane. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very meta like that. And uh, ultimately, what happens is Holly uh, uh, and and uh, the boy, I forget the boy's name. Um, but in, in the, the iron box are these relics and are these um, uh, texts that are in Greek and Arabic, and yet he has to translate them. And it eventually leads them on this journey into Africa to meet this white woman <laughs> who's this goddess that these the native group uh, uh, pray, you know, they, they pray to and all that. And it gets very um, apocalypse now kind of where, you know, at the end of Apocalypse Now, there's all these natives that are treat this guy like he's he's a god, and that's how they treat her. And uh, being that this was written in the 1800s, I, I think I don't I, I don't need to do a spoiler alert. But spoiler, alert, I'm going to give you the end. Yeah. Uh, because when they finally they finally get there, there's lots of racist dancing and shit like that. <laughs> but but in the end, he confront he he manages to confront she. It's this big action packed thing which blew me away. They end up in, in uh, this, this kind of uh, caverny crevice area. And it turns out she is a goddess. She has magic power. So it's, this is still like the end of an, you know, Indiana Jones this is yeah. what I always think of. It's this archeologist who goes through a very basic adventure, but at the end there really is magic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what happens here. And I read this. And the whole time I'm like, I keep going, when was this written? I didn't know people wrote stuff like this back then. And it blew me away. And it's, 
I mean, you know, it's it's written in its time period. Besides the the racial and you know political issues that come with it, the language is 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 from that time period. So, uh, like I said, I skipped to when he opened the door. It's a good page of him going, just looking in the mirror and just comment. You know, sometimes it takes them twenty words to say what we now can say in two. But, but that being said. If you can, you know, if you if you're comfortable reading that kind of language, it's a wild ride, and uh, and, and that's what H. Ryder Haggard wrote. Uh, she, which was ex- phenomenally successful at the time, really, and continued to stay in print uh, to now. It's still in print. Um, yeah, he wrote a sequel, uh, which I can't remember the name of, but then he also was became famous for writing uh, the Alan Quartermain series, which eventually was made into a movie. One of them was oh. made into a movie. Yeah. And it was also much, even more so a prototype for Indiana Jones. And he wrote a crossover. There's a book called Alan and she. <laughs> I so, had no idea that there's that, that, that a whole universe even existed. Like I'd heard of Alan Quartermain novels. I right. would have never known that this was possible. But the fact that back then, not only was somebody writing meta books, was writing adventure books like this, but th- was doing crossovers. Yeah. I had no idea any of that existed back in the ninth or you know late nineteenth century like that. And uh, it just amazed me. That's so, so phenomenal. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. I thought you might enjoy that. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Now I want to find it and read it. That's so good. Uh, and so so anyway, that's that. So um, I hadn't really picked that because it connected with anything I wrote, except as I was reading that part out loud, it, it occurred to me that there is a very slight connection in that my Max Porter series, uh, I take real history and I, like I said, I mix it with all the magic and stuff. And invariably Max, Max himself is just a guy. And so his superpower is that he's really good at research. And in, in all the books, he researches the area and I take, and I, I like, like was being told in the part I read to you, he will eventually uncover deep histories that can go back, you know, centuries about North Carolina and, and the triad in particular. And he will, uh, and of course, but I weave in a bunch of fiction in that as well. Sure. Um, and so that's my, like, so that's my best-selling series, but it's the, the ghost, his name is Marshall Drummond. And, uh, the series has been successful enough and that that character is successful enough that I actually did a spinoff series called the Marshall Drummond case files, which are short stories and novellas written about Marshall Drummond back when he was alive in the 1940s. Right. And that's what I'm going to read for you uh, today. Oh, fabulous. uh, I'm just going to read from the opening of the very first case Uh file, uh, which is called uh, the butcher's wife. And this was written um, back in, uh, well, I'll read it first and then I'll tell you the, the history behind it. So I'll just start reading. <laughs> hey, go for it. Marshall Drummond knocked on the chipped wooden door to room 2F. It had been a chilly morning in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Marshall had opted for his favorite trench coat and fedora. He knew his attire made him look like a classic G-man, but his days working in the public sector had ended a few years back when he left the police department after a rather unsettling experience one that opened his eyes to the world beneath the surface. As a private investigator, most of his cases tended to involve that other world, the one with ghosts and spells, the one with witches and curses, the one most people never saw nor wanted to see. 
When his old patrol buddy Cooper asked him to handle the current matter in private, he welcomed the idea of a case that did not involve the need for trips to the cemetery or discoveries about how deep the underworld went. He should have known better. Drummond raised his fist to knock on the door again when a charming gal opened it up. She was small, though most people were small compared to Drummond, and she wore her hair much like Vivian Lee, whose popularity continued to rise since starring in Gone with the Wind. In fact, if not for the tear stains on her cheeks, the woman holding the door open had the looks to grab a man's heart and walk away with it in her purse. Ms. Parker, I'm Marshall Drummond. Our mutual friend, Detective Cooper, sent me. Said you needed some assistance. The worry on her face told Drummond everything. This would be a more complicated case than Cooper had let on. Of course, Cooper always had been light on details when it came to work, so Drummond should not have been surprised. Please, call me Anne, she said, stepping back to let Drummond into the apartment. Like most of the apartments Drummond had seen, the depression had taken its toll on this one as well. Even 10 years since the crash, people still suffered. Sparse furnishings and a threadbare tablecloth bore witness to Anne Parker's losses. He saw no signs of silver picture frames, and Anne wore no jewelry of any kind. All pawned off, no doubt. Though the single window in the room had been shut, Drummond could feel the cold seeping through. To try to stay warm, Anne wore a brown and white knit cap and a wool scarf with brown fringe. One door leading to the toilet and single bedroom had been shut to warm up the room. The air smelled damp and stale. Anne's rose petal perfume did little to cover it up. In the summer, the window would have been open, but the odor of cars clogging the street would have been little improvement. Would you like some coffee? Anne asked. Drummond glanced at the open kitchen area, which was separated from the rest of the single room by a white counter. He saw nothing on the counter to indicate that she had much in the way of food, let alone coffee. No, thank you. I think it best if I just get to work. Fidgeting with the frayed ends of her coat, she sat on a wood chair by a small round table next to the window. I didn't realize the detective had sent anybody. Well, you know Cooper. Just give him a sweet and simple matter to sweep under the rug, and he's going to make sure even the filthiest of us is as clean as possible. Yes, I suppose so. Now, as I understand it, your friend is missing and forced a sad chuckle. Is that what we're going to call it? We can call it whatever you want. She's my wife, I guess. Not according to law, of course, but we loved each other. Does that shock you? Now it was Drummond's turn to chuckle. Doll, if you saw half of the things I'd seen in my life, a couple of queer ladies ain't going to be the beginning of shock. Now your wife, please tell me her name, when she went missing and exactly how you found out about it. Her name is Zia, but I don't know much more than that. She just didn't come home a couple days ago. I do hope she's okay. Drummond pursed his lips and tapped his chin. His gaze shifted from the nervous young woman to the closed bedroom door. He clapped his hands together once, strong and loud. The girl jumped in her seat. A picture, he said. I don't need a picture. I don't see a picture in this room of Zia. Do you have something? Perhaps in your bedroom. As Drummond stepped towards the door, Anne bolted from her chair. Please don't go in there. My unmentionables are out. I'll get you a picture. Thank you. I sure appreciate it. Opening the door the minimum necessary, Anne slipped through and shut the door behind her. Not suspicious at all, Drummond thought. 
as he ambled into the kitchen area. He poked through the cabinets and drawers, mostly empty. Squatting, he pulled back the curtain under the sink. What he saw gave him pause. Three candles, black, red, and green, a jar of salt, a jar of gray powder. Not enough to definitively say that one of these two women was a witch, but given the paraphernalia's hidden nature, Drummond's internal warnings sounded. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, the the beginning, I, I said I'd tell you the story behind that. Uh, yeah. As I'm sure you're well, well remember back in 2016, North Carolina passed the bathroom bill and all that. And oh, yeah. uh, I forget, was it, I forget if it was Falstaff or if it was just a project some members of Falstaff and others put together, but they put together an anthology uh, of LGBT short stories and such uh, uh, to raise money to, ha- to help fight that bill. And at that point, I had, I had was thinking about doing these Marshall Drummond case files, but I had yet to find a story to, to, to kick it all off with. And, uh, and of course, I wanted to participate in, the, in this anthology. So I thought it just kind of came together. And I was like, that will be the first one. So that was, and, and the only requirement, uh, if I recall from the editors, was that uh, a LGBTQ character had to be a prominent part of the story in some way, or the issue had to be a part of the story. And that was how it began. That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, I am in that anthology and have that anthology. And now I need to go find it and read that story. Because somehow that it escaped me that that was your story. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you read the John Thunston stories by Manly Wade Wellman? Um, No. I've actually... (laughs) So I've read a lot of uh, uh, Wellman's nonfiction because I do mm-hmm. a lot of research for my, you know, to find ghost stories and things and strange, yeah. strange history of the area. I've yet to read any of his fiction. though. His uh, John Thunston is a New York city. I don't know exactly how to describe him. He's not exactly a playboy, but he does seem to be independently wealthy, mm-hmm. but <laughs> so like, yeah, it's socialite, except he's sort of an antisocial socialite. Um, <laughs> he's like very, he's very dignified and he lives in nice hotels and he drinks good bourbon and stuff like that. Um, but he investigates occult mysteries when they present themselves. Mm-hmm. And so he's, uh, to some degree, I have read, he was one of the inspirations for the character of Fox Mulder. Oh. And uh, and I immediately I got big John Thunston vibes from this and I love the John Thunston stories. So now I'm like, Oh my God, I need every one of these. Um, <laughs> so that is really fabulous. I am really excited to read these now. Uh, that is awesome. Well, I, I will, I will throw this out here, a little pitchy stuff, but, uh, since you have the anthology, you can read that story that I just started. And sure. if you like it, um, the first five are collected in, in, in a collection and the next four or five are in another collection. I mean, you can buy them individually if you want. There's 10 stories out there right now. Mm-hmm. Every so many I collect. And the, the second collection actually has four, has four novellas that all, there are four different cases, but each case causes the next one. So it's kind of mm-hmm. one big piece. Uh, the first collection are just random short stories. Would you IM me the links to those so that I can make sure that I have the right ones because I want to link it in the show notes. Sure, sure. 
yeah please Absolutely. and i'll like include it in the facebook posts and all that jazz yeah. uh because that's really fabulous also because i'm gonna go buy them but <laughs> uh but like that is really fabulous that is like so many of my specific genre buttons getting simultaneously pressed is <laughs> fabulous um so like uh is there anything about those or about that character or anything or that story beyond that that you particularly want to make sure that you tell us there's no wrong answer you know it um, could be no <laughs> i i don't i don't know i love the character everybody loves this character that reads <laughs> the um these stories or, or, you know, especially when he has a ghost, he's, he's got decades of, of being a ghost experience. And so he's, he's, uh, he's a very much of a smart ass at times. Um, uh, I like these short story, the, these case files because he's alive. And so I get to explore 1940s Winston-Salem a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, the, there's no, uh, the history, the real history stuff is in the Max Porter stuff. I, I do enough research for that and I was not going to do that for these. So this is just my imaginary 1940s uh, uh, Winston-Salem. Although I'm, you know, there, if there are things I happen to know are real, I'll, I'll include them. But uh, uh, I, 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 if you like the, if you've read either, either series, if you like this character, you'll like either series, you know, they, Good deal. they go hand in hand, I think really well. And, and I think part of the proof of that for me is, you know, I, I wrote short stories for over a decade before I started writing novels. And so when I started uh, self-publishing, you know, seven years ago, um, I had tons of short stories that have been published over, you know, over the years. And so I put them all together in collections and put them out there and, and I put them out individually and they, you know, I might sell one or two copies a, a year, you know, they just, they don't sell, right. but these Marshall Drummond stories sell people, love, you know, they, they really enjoy them because they love that character and whether they come to it through uh, like, you're going to be coming to that first. And I suspect if you like it enough, you'll probably go read the, the Max Porter stuff or, the other way around people just really enjoy it and so i've, I've never had such success with short stories before but i'm glad because i enjoy writing them and, uh, oh that's awesome it's so fabulous hmm. <laughs> well thank you very much for being here how do people find you online uh, i'm not hard to find a uh, uh, stewartjaffe.com is mm-hmm. my website uh, i mostly hang out on facebook and i have uh, you can just go to uh, uh, i think it's author Stuart jaffe is my business page look up my name and you'll find me there um technically i'm on twitter and instagram but i rarely check those so uh that's <laughs> you not know. where you, you you know you're better off either going to my web my web page you can get there's a, a connect you know if you want to connect with me directly you can do it through there uh or on like i said on, on facebook and, and if you're looking for my books everything is on Everything is everywhere. Amazon, Apple, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, uh, all, all of that. It's all in ebook. It's all in print. Most of it is in audiobook now. Um, I've almost got my whole backlog up. And if you enjoyed hearing me read today, uh, I read most of my audiobooks myself. Um, there's a couple that other people have done, uh, but all the Marshall Drummond stuff, all the Max Porter stuff, uh, almost everything I do myself. That's fabulous. Wow. 
That's I'm I am intensely envious. Uh, <laughs> nobody's ever going to pay me to read my books, and that is fine. Other people can read them. That's <laughs> well, it's better I do that have, way. I have uh, uh, my undergraduate degree. Undergraduate degree was in theater, and, oh. I, had a, and I had a podcast for six years. So I had all the audio equipment and I've had the training, theater trainings to, of using my voice and all that. So I'm very comfortable doing it. And, uh, and people responded well to it. I, when I first, you know, I did a first few things. I figured if people were like, you know, this guy should never read an audio book, then I would have stopped. But the response was really good. I've gotten a lot of comments. If you go on Audible, you'll see a lot of comments where people are like, I saw this was read by the author and I cringed, but he won me over. I really liked it, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm happy to do it. it. saves me a lot of money <laughs> and it's fun. It's fun. To and personally, as a listener to audiobooks, because audiobooks are how I do most of my reading these mm -hmm. days, then I love it when a, when a writer reads their book, because I feel like they get it. They know everything that they're trying to convey. I, I'm, I, I'm of a mixed bag. It just depends on who the author is. If, if they have the, if they know how to use their voice, right. uh, I'm happy to do it. There are plenty of authors who are clearly, you know, they're more of the introvert authors who are very uncomfortable even being on a panel, <laughs> let alone speaking in front of an audience or, or into a microphone. And they're doing them. I think those authors are doing themselves a disservice and are much better having a trained actor actually read their words for them. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, if you're like, like John Hartness, who also has a theater background and acting training as well. Um, he, I, I can listen to him read anything. He's got a great rich voice and it's wonderful, you know, and yeah. he knows his characters. So yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I will post this probably tomorrow possibly okay. thursday and when i do i'll like send you the links and everything like that okay great well yeah. thank you very much for having me on the show i really appreciate it well thank you very much for being here it was a lot this of fun really delightful i'll see you later okay <laughs> thank you take care <laughs> bye bye-bye thanks for listening this podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. Thank you.